Welcome to the CEO Sales Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Hughes, and I am so excited to bring you real-world insights from legendary CEOs on how to drive and sustain top-line growth and create a customer-centric culture. Whether you're an aspiring or seasoned corporate leader, you'll hear wisdom with real-world application that can make a real difference in your business. But we also provide insights here for sales professionals seeking to elevate to the C-suite. As a seller, you'll better understand how a CEO actually thinks and what it really takes to earn a conversation. Let's jump in with this episode's CEO. I've had the privilege of knowing Bridget for, gee, it'd be at least 20 years, uh, maybe 25 years longer. We worked in the same company together. She's had an amazing career. She's worked in financial services and the tech sector, and she's currently managing director for Asia Pacific and Japan for Qualtrics. They, in my mind, are the world's leading experience management business. So whether a company is looking to create great employee experience, customer experience, or partner experience, even investor and shareholder experience, uh, they make sure that you're truly connected uh, to all of those individuals and, and the way that you engage with them as an organization. She's got 25 years of business and leadership experience. Her, she came up in her career through sales, uh, which I think is really interesting for all of the sellers wanting to get to a CEO and to understand how to engage effectively. But she's also been a non-executive board member of organizations and a member on the risk and audit committees in the finance industry. So we know that as we sell, there's all of these committees that our requests go to. So without any further ado, I'm just going to bring Bridget into the conversation. So Bridget, welcome. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much for inviting me today. I know it's, it's absolutely my privilege and the privilege of the audience. So really excited about the conversation. Now, Bridget, I know I kind of stole your thunder and gave a little bit of an introduction, but would you just mind giving people a little bit more colour just so they can contextualise what you're sharing with them today about the scope of the organisation that you run? Because there's there's many uh, countries that you're looking after, different cultures that you're operating in. So tell us a, a little bit about Qualtrics. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Well, every organisation, regardless of industry, is in the midst of an experience transformation. Now, everybody on this webinar today, if you think about what's happened over the last two years in particular, our expectations as consumers have changed, our buying preferences, whether we've chosen to or not, we've been forced into a digital environment. Our expectations of as employees have changed. Um, I have the privilege of being in the office today, but a, a lot of people choose to work from home or have to work from home. So all of these experiences are changing and they're changing our behaviours and our preferences and those changes are accelerating in many instances. So what Qualtrics does is it helps organisations focus on customer experience, employee experience, product experience and interestingly brand experience. So the experiences that organisations and consumers have with your brand has changed and we help organisations deal with that because Honestly, experiences is the only sustainable differentiation for organisations moving forward. And that also applies to government as well in terms of citizen experience. So that's what Qualtrics does, is help organisations manage through that change. Wow. And it's absolutely highly relevant because for all of the leaders and sellers that are watching this, what all of the research has revealed in the last 10, 15 years is that the number one point of positive differentiation 
is the way that you engage the customer. It's not, it's not brand or the attributes of what you sell or even price. You know, price is typically less than 10%. I know that may sound surprising, but that's what the research shows. And, and the brand and the attributes of what we offer together is typically less than 40%. And experience is absolutely more than 50. So I agree with you 100%. And with everything that's gone on in the world, you know, with the pandemic in the last 18 months, it's really accelerated a digital first world. So people are looking for this omni-channel, consistent experience that gives them what they want. So yeah, absolutely highly relevant as a business. So Bridget, what's the kind of scale of the organization, the number of offices, countries, number of employees that, that you're responsible for? Yeah, so we have over uh, four and a half thousand employees globally. I'm hiring 1,200 in Asia Pacific Japan over the next three years. And that growth is really fueled by this experience transformation that's being forced onto all, all of the organisations that we serve. And literally, it's the only thing, I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning, Tony, about how, how long we've known each other. I've sold many things in my career. I've never sold something that can have impact in every single industry and every size organisation as they look to transform based on experiences with inside their business for their employees and also their customers. Wow, wow. So talk, talk, talk us through a little bit of how you rose to the position of CEO because you came through originally a sales career, yeah? Yeah, I did. I started in sales as a graduate trainee and I was on a fantastic graduate trainee program. I actually was in enterprise sales from the beginning and I, I really lent into any opportunity. If I reflect upon the advancement of my career, I think it's because I worked in the territories that people didn't want. I had this um, passion for change and, and really wanted to experience new things. So I went from enterprise sales into, I did alliance marketing, channel marketing, product management, product marketing, solution marketing, and then always in between back into sales and leading sales teams. I then did my um, postgraduate degree went to, and did an MBA. And through that, I, through the, actually, that actually changed how I sold. Before then, as you mentioned, I've been predominantly in IT sales and when I did my MBA, it really opened up my eyes to my competition was not the competitor. My competition was alternative use of funding. And I think that really shifted how I approached the customers that I sold. Through that MBA and the alumni, I also got onto uh, the credit union that you mentioned and was became a board member. And then I, through leading sales teams, and I knew I wanted to get into being a general manager. And when I looked at my resume in terms of the portfolio, although I had really done a range of different roles. The one thing I hadn't had was operational experience. And I was in a business at the time and had a real opportunity to lead into a very large commercial SMB function. And that was a great opportunity for me to really hone my operational muscle, which led me to my first opportunity at Qualtrics as the Australian country manager and now running the region. Wow, wow. Well, let's jump into some insights for business leaders. How, how do you think the function of revenue generation and selling has really changed for organisations? What, what, what do they need to think about for 2022? Yeah, I think from a B2B perspective, if, if you're selling into an organisation, I have fundamental belief that it's not your customer's job to understand your relevance, it's your job to be relevant. In this day and age, I think some of the best work we can do is being connectors. 
So connecting your customer to other potential customers, understanding if they're, if they're selling into businesses, who is an ideal customer for them and why? And if you can help connect them to actually driving revenue before you're pitching anything or selling anything, you're adding value. Connecting them to talent is another way to help. Connecting them, if you're selling into a big organisation, connecting individuals within the organisation. Sometimes it continues to surprise me how isolated and focused various departments are. So if you can traverse a business and add value by connecting people with inside their organisation, that can help. And then it also, in a funny sort of way, leads back to Qualtrics in terms of what we do and we help organisations understand what their customers need, the changing needs of their customers. You mentioned the digital transformation. What came with the digital transformation over the last 18 months is the cost of switching has gone down to zero. So customers can swift, uh, can change suppliers and change the organisations that they purchase from very easily. So at Qualtrics, we can help customers connect with their customers to understand what, how their needs are changing, how to change their products and services to meet those needs, how to find market share and how to retain it. For CEOs that are watching this, that are seeking to drive uh, rapid rates of growth, where where are the biggest risks? I mean, you've just talked about hiring a huge number of people. <laughs> having having the right people in the right roles is obviously something that's hard to get right. But but what are the biggest risks that they should think about managing? Yeah, fundamentally, I think it, it always starts with people, people, process, pipeline, and performance. If I think about the instruments that are coming into boardrooms at the moment, they're really lagging indicators. Revenue that's come through the door, forecasting based on pre-COVID modelling, very important information, but that's all about the operations of the business. It's a lagging indicator. I liken it to a dashboard in a car. Very important information. If you're screaming down the freeway at 100 kilometres an hour, you need to know how your, how your vehicle is operating, how your business is operating. But with Qualtrics, it's like a windscreen that tells you there's a bend in the road coming in 200 metres and, and it gives you the opportunity based on to understand how that bend in the road is coming because of how your customers are feeling, how engaged your employees are or not. Some of our customers have used our platform to pivot and understand the vulnerabilities in their supply chain. They want to be the customer of choice for their suppliers. So understanding supplier experience. So really seeing what is coming and getting ahead of that will help you manage that growth and mitigate the risk. I really love that analogy because cars today are just getting jammed, packed full of technology. And if the technology just becomes a distraction, it's actually you become you become a danger to yourself with all of the distractions. I love the concept of a heads up display. And you're right, so many leaders focus on the rear vision mirror sort of metrics about the business instead of trying to proactively manage those input activities that feed into objectives that then go and get the results. So I really like that. And, and, and I agree with you 100% when you mentioned the importance of pipeline. Lack of consistent quality pipeline coverage in a business creates huge levels of stress. And it feeds into another thing that you mentioned, which is around forecasting. So obviously in your role, you're forecasting up. <laughs> in essence, that it flows through to the board. What, what's your advice for business leaders? And for all of the sellers that are watching this, the number one way that you create insane levels of stress for your boss <laughs> and the management layer of the company is just not forecasting accurately because it's critical, right? So what, what's your advice on managing forecast risk for the leaders that are looking at this? 
Yeah, I think it obviously depends on what you're selling, right? If if you're if you're selling volumes, it's all about understanding what is the cadence in the business. What is it that you can predictably forecast based on, you know, the the what is coming through, the the velocity of deals in your pipeline. What can you create and close in a week and in a month and in a quarter? My firm belief is if you focus on predictability, performance will naturally follow. So I, whether it's a rep in my business or a sales leader or a, or a country manager, we focus on predictability first. And then when you're thinking about if you're doing those B2B sales where there are opportunities that you're pursuing, I'm, yeah. I'm a big believer in being an optimist in life and a pessimist on deals. Try and work out where every single thing can go wrong in that deal, not because you want to call risk and be right. You want to call risk and set an action in place to mitigate that risk. So that's that's my firm belief, optimist in life, pessimist on deals, and manage those outlier large deals by mitigating the risks and taking action. One of Actually, one of the top tips that I like to share with my sellers is to do a, a pre-mortem. So go, go to your coach, right? Right. Go to your coach and ask your coach in that in that sales cycle, someone who really wants you to win, and ask them this question. If we're sitting here lamenting the fact that this project never happened, this purchase never happened, what got in the way? Wow. And then be and then be comfortable with silence because sometimes they haven't thought about it. And they and it might make them realize actually Marianne doesn't like technology or, you know, um, John is budget. So it will help surface what, what the risk is for them as, as the coach who wants to actually get this done. It's a really powerful question. That is such great advice. And in the same vein of that advice, what, what I teach people to do is whoever your champion, coach, sponsor is within your deal, ask that person when you go up the line, you know, to the CEO, CFO asking for approval, Imagine they say to you, look, I've got 27 things I'm being asked to approve right now. It's not even about the money. We just we just don't have the bandwidth and resources in the organization to do everything. Why this? And that person has to be able to finish these two sentences. This is essential because it pays for itself by. And if, if they can't nail that with clarity, our deal is absolutely at risk. And it's amazing how many sellers can't even answer that question on their own deal. So so I, I, I love what you were sharing about the risks that people were managing. How, how do you drive that? Was was it the word predictability that you used? You know, you try and make sure that there's predictability. How do you drive the predictability? I guess one of those things is make sure you manage risk. Are there other elements that you focus on as well? Yeah, knowing knowing the metrics. I mean, I'm a very passionate user of Salesforce, and that's actually what brought me to work at Salesforce. But, you know, if if you use a platform like Salesforce, and there are other CRMs, if you use that well, it helps you as a seller understand your territory, understand what's happening in your territory. What's the velocity in, in your deals? What can you absolutely count on in terms of creating and closing? What's the rhythm that you do? And this is another reason to use Salesforce as an individual, because it helps you learn how to drive that predictability, which helps you accelerate your career as well. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Salesforce as well. But, you know, whether you use SAP CRM, Dynamics, Salesforce, HubSpot, you know, whichever it is, my advice to leaders that are watching this, 
make sure you implement your CRM in a way that actually enables the process for your sellers and that that process is aligned with buyer's journey. Obviously, what what Bridget does with Qualtrics helps you absolutely understand what people are looking for on those buyer's journeys. So, hey, Bridget, before we uh, pivot to really provide some coaching for sellers, I, I know you're a big believer in being part of a purpose-driven organization where where values and behavior are absolutely front and center. So how would you describe the the sales culture within the Qualtrics business that you seek to really create? Passion, not pressure. We're creating the experience management category here. We actually have created it, but now we need to take it to the world. We want people that are really passionate about the impact that experience management and becoming experience-centric can have on organisations. To your point, if we are passionate about prioritisation, if our sellers are passionate about the impact that becoming experience-centric will have on an organisation, they will help their customers reprioritise this because they know how important it is for the organisation that they serve. So I think it's it's passion for for what you're doing and it's, and it's drive, it's intrinsic motivation, it's uh, real business curiosity um, and a desire to serve the customers that we sell to. I really love that because I've always believed that selling is about making a positive difference in the life of the customer, both, both personally and professionally. And you're dead right. And we've got no chance of selling unless we're first a true believer in the value of what we offer, you know, because we're trying to transfer that belief to other people. Hey, what are, what are the skills and attributes that you look for uh, in salespeople in your organization? So like you're hiring a ton of people in the next few years. Obviously, the things you've just spoken about, you want to uncover that that's in their DNA. But what are the other things that you look for in a successful seller? I really believe, and I, I talked about it earlier, but that natural curiosity. I always ask sellers, what is the last thing you learned and how did you learn it? I look for somebody who really believes sales is a profession and I'm looking at your library of books, half of which I know you wrote behind you. But if, <laughs> if, sellers, if sellers are not investing in their own development, then that says to me that they consider sales a job, not a profession. So I look for that. Um, I look for people that are excited about what they bring to market, regardless of what that is, the impact that it will have. And in my business, it's not just about helping the customer extract the value from their investment in Qualtrics. Because we're creating this category, we're actually creating the careers of some of the people that we serve. We're accelerating their careers as they build out their discipline around XM. So people that are really passionate about those outcomes. Wow, I, I, I absolutely love that. And, you know, I've always been committed to being a lifelong learner. There's so much to learn from books. And so you want to be passionate and curious about your customer, but you want to be passionate and curious about your own profession. And the truth is sellers make as much as doctors, dentists, lawyers, pilots, and yet so many of the people in professional selling, they just don't read. So really encourage every seller to make sure they read a book every month. I'd encourage every leader to start book club, right, and actually get their people reading. And then, you know, one of your sales meetings sort of test people on whether they have. It's really important. Even with Sales IQ Global, if you're watching this, go and visit Sales IQ Global. Look at doing the Create Pipeline program. Really invest in your own personal development. Hey, Bridget, let's let's pivot and provide some coaching for salespeople. So I I'll, really want to begin by asking you a question. In a given month, 
how many phone calls do you receive from a seller? And then the follow on part of that question is, what are the best channels for someone to try and engage you? Because I think you'd be very representative of other CEOs. None. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't actually get called by many sales people at all. So the I actually, I did receive a phone call fairly recently from somebody that said, hi, it's Joe Bloggs. Call me back. This is my number. And I didn't know who this person was. I was... I was a bit worried that maybe this was a customer that I hadn't met yet and, and something was wrong. So I rang that person back and it was somebody trying to sell me something. And here's the thing, that really annoyed me so much because I prioritised that call. I had no reason why, I didn't know why I was calling it. I bet that salesperson thought, fantastic, Bridget's called yeah. me back. But guess who I will never meet with? <laughs> so, you know, I think you've got to be very careful that you're not, you don't have unintended consequences in some of these reach outs that people do. But the, the best way to get in contact with me is to probably come through my assistant, particularly because in during the day I'm in back-to-backs, as a lot of people are on this call. So the best way is through my assistant and make it relevant to what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, so 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 absolutely be relevant. One of the other CEOs I was speaking to in another show said, uh, if you talk about anything operational, I'm going to delegate you down to my people that look after those things. So if you, you've, you've got to be relevant to the person in their role. So, so what are the most important things for a CEO? If a seller is trying to build the right conversation for a CEO, what, what's your advice about what you need to build the conversation around? Oh, clearly the outcomes of that business, right, whether they're short term or, or longer term. The, for me, if you anything you can do to help me drive growth, I'm interested. In some respects, it's okay to be delegated down because if what you're selling has operational value, I'll put you in touch with the person who is making that decision. I think sometimes we can think that we have to get to the CEO, but sometimes if what you are selling is just going to help operationally, that's that's the buyer. I delegate those buying decisions to the person responsible who has the budget. So I think the, the key thing is, is to be relevant. I don't care what you're selling. I care that it's going to help me achieve my outcomes and achieve them faster. Wow. Okay. Look, I, I really like that. And, um, you know, for every salesperson, obviously, have a look at the annual report, see what the CEO wrote in it. Go and invest in go and invest time in understanding what happened at the at the investor meeting. Consider even buying some shares in the company if they're public. Yeah, starting absolutely. to receive that information. Yeah, I think that that's really critical. If you can become a customer of the organisation that you're selling to, very easy. If you're selling to somebody that sells to consumers, but become a customer, have a point of view of what that feels like from a customer's perspective. And then, as you say, Tony, become a shareholder. Then you're sitting across the table with equity in the business, even if it's $20. You can still sit there as an owner and have a conversation that shifts from something that you're selling, but that you have equity in that business. So you're able to have a point of view on what that organisation should focus on. Yes. And I've heard you talk to sellers also about if you can go and become a customer of the customer that you're seeking to win, right? So because that'll give you a point of view, especially for what you do at Qualtrics around experience, right? So all of those things are great advice. So we're getting some good questions come through. So please keep typing your questions in. We'll be moving to Q&A 
in about five minutes or so. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me and what you've said is that almost nobody ever calls you. So I'm assuming that if you if you can pluck up the courage and then earn the right to be relevant in your research and your point of view, if you call a CEO, that's probably one of the most likely ways you'll secure engagement. Is there a particular time of day that you think is best for trying to talk to someone in the C-suite? I'm an early riser myself. Once eight o'clock hits, I'll be in meetings. I think it's become worse with everyone virtually because I actually went to a customer meeting this week, Tony, the first one I've had in person in a long time. And it was so lovely to sit in the Uber and just have <laughs> travel time. That would have been a good time to call. But obviously, you won't necessarily be able to see people's diaries. So I would go early. Uh, in the afternoon, and anything can come up during the day that's going to extend the working day of a senior executive. So I would go early. Uh, my, my cold calling would be before eight. It's so interesting you say that because I, what I say to people is you should be on the phone like at quarter to eight, you know, maybe even earlier because executives, you know, when we're back to traveling again, like they regard travel time as a great time for dealing with things like this. And so many people are resistant. They go, no, but I'm the same as you, Bridget. I've, I've, I've been um, the regional manager for Asia Pacific for North American multinationals as well. And my life was the same. I, I was in the office working by 7.15 every morning because in my own mind, that was my only window. I'd, I'd get about a, a 60 to 90 minute window to actually get my work done <laughs> because as soon as kind of 8.30 rolled around, people are standing at my door. You know, they're wanting things. There's some crisis that we've got to go and deal with. And you're just in endless back-to-back -back meetings. So I find a lot, most leaders absolutely start early. And I don't know whether you agree with this, maybe give me your feedback, but I always tried to sort of finish my day as far as meetings go by 4.30 so that I could try and clean the day up and plan for tomorrow and actually get home to have dinner with my family. Is that your experience as well? It's a little bit different for me just because we have... <laughs> the region. The region, yeah. So India's, India starts for me at midday, as you know. So probably not 4.30, but in principle, I, I agree with you. Here's my other thought, Tony. Like, I'm a firm believer that everybody comes to, to work to do a great job. So their reluctance to get on the phone and, and call somebody is probably because they don't want to interrupt, right? They're, they're, they're a nice person. They don't want to interrupt that senior executive. And this is where it gets back to passion, if I absolutely believe that what I sell matters, I'm not interrupting, I'm adding value. So I think that's the mind shift, mind shift that I try and change with my reluctant sellers to call early. You, all you're doing by calling early is bringing that person forward in, in whatever it is they're trying to achieve. If, if you believe that statement, pick up the phone. Wow, wow, okay. Hey, you gave us an example before of someone who really botched their outreach with you, right? Because they, they didn't provide any context, right? So one of the things I teach is if you phone a CEO or C-suite person and get their voicemail, there's nothing wrong with saying, uh, hey, hey, Bridget, it's, it's Tony from Sales IQ. Hey, I'm just looking for 15 minutes. I'll send you an email, right? So because what that does is it drives the person to look at the email. So then in the email, you can you can craft what you think the point of view is, right? So in our world, it would be, hey, I think there could be an opportunity to 
to get more of your sellers on target year to date and, and de-risk the forecast. You know, that'd be an example of a double-edged point of view. But the moment we lapse into who we are and what we do, <laughs> you know, we just get delegated away, right? So you gave us an example of someone who botched it. Are you happy to share an example of where you think a seller did a brilliant job? Maybe someone in your own organisation or someone that tried to get to you? Yeah, I think what you said is very valid. If someone leaves me a message and says, I'm going to send you an email, I know it's a considered thought. I know that it's not just ringing the next person with the pitch, but there's a there's something that they're trying to convey to me and I will go looking for that email. I, I, this is probably not a great thing to admit, but when I'm scanning through emails, I'm reading the heading and I'm opening the emails from my people and from my customers and from my partners that I know I need to address. So if something is random in there, it's not going to catch my attention. If I'm looking for it off the back of a voicemail, I'll see it and find it. We had a great example recently of one of uh, the sellers in our team who was a customer and also a shareholder of a major telecommunications company. And their outreach to the CEO was exactly around their experience as a customer in that organisation. And the CEO of that extremely large telecommunications organisation responded back to that email. It was exactly how you have put in combos to do the yep. phone call, send the email. And the CEO responded inside two hours he did introduce two other team members of his executive to deal with and have the meeting, but at least our seller had been endorsed by this CEO to have that conversation and it happened the next day. Wow, wow. Talk me through the importance of a common trusted relationship as the path to you and also an introduction from people down below you in the organisation. Like how, how, how impactful is that on whether you'll take the meeting? Anybody in my business that has an idea on how we can improve or how we can achieve our outcomes better or faster, I want to hear from. So if the most junior or the least tenured person in my business says, hey, Bridget, you really need to speak to Tony. I think he'll be able to help us do X, Y, and Z. I'll have a meeting with Tony. It doesn't sometimes, and I see it inside our business, sometimes our sellers think that you have to have a referral into the CEO, you actually, I don't think you do. You, you have to have a referral into the business. And certainly from my perspective, if anybody came to me and, and within the business and said that I needed to speak to somebody out of respect for my staff, I would, I would have that meeting because I trust their judgment. Yeah, that's true. And Julian Fenwick just made a really good comment in the chat here that she says, um, sorry, he says, uh, I agree with Bridget's point on sellers needing to target the right person in the organization, not always the CEO, because you're right, we need to talk to the person that's, that, that's the chief problem owner, right? So, so they actually own the problem uh, and the authority and the budget to go and resolve it. And, and they'll need to, to go and get people on board. So the, the best approach I find is absolutely start at the highest practical level and then get, then, then get yourself sponsored down and around, you know, for, for consensus. But if someone's got power of veto, it's really important that we have that meeting with them, right? Because they'll be looking for a particular outcome from, from the result. So I was talking to a CEO earlier this week who, who lost the deal. And when they went and did the debrief, they figured out what happened. They were selling to the CFO and the CEO was you know, needed to approve the decision they tried and the CFO was happy for them to meet with the CEO and their salesperson tried to do that, 
but the conversation narrative that they used didn't work. <laughs> the CEO thought, well, no, I don't need to meet with you. I'm happy with you just working with the CFO. So they, they didn't make the conversation about the right. And guess what? They lost the deal because the competitor managed to build a relationship with the CEO. <laughs> so, it's, you know, normally when we lose a deal, you know, it's often just because, you know, we've actually got outsold. So, hey, what's your opinion about about LinkedIn today and how sellers can use LinkedIn best to, again, tr try and gain access to you? you? You'll see a lot of clumsy, bad, spammy things going on in LinkedIn today. What, what's your advice? I think it's the same. It's just another communication channel, Tony. And so you need to be relevant. You need to be specific. You, you know, I think the good thing, the great thing about LinkedIn is you can see when people change roles. Now, that's an amazing trigger for impact because if someone has changed, whether they've been promoted or whether they've changed companies, usually they go into that role wanting to have an impact and wanting to leave a legacy. So we saw this recently. Actually, it was this um, a customer meeting again that I had in person and we were talking to this potential customer. So it was a prospect, very senior executives. One of them is it has just recently got the level role that that she's that she stepped into. And I could physically see this is the joys of face-to-face -face meetings. I could physically see her posture changed when she realized we were talking about experience, employee experience and the transformation that could have in culture. And I could see the moment that it clicked in her head that this could be her legacy in that in that business is how she could really shift the culture inside inside the business. Yeah. So I, I would say use LinkedIn as an absolute trigger to know when to reach out to people at those pivotal times in their career. But to your point, I don't accept LinkedIn messages from anybody. I accept them when people, if I don't know them, if they've explained why they want to be connected, yeah. I, will, I will absolutely make that connection. But often you just get those, please connect. I don't understand the benefit of that. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. So, so for everybody watching this as a seller, role-based trigger events are the most powerful because a new senior person into a role has usually been hired in that role to affect change. And they are absolutely looking for some quick wins for the board or the people they report to, and also for the organization. And Bridget is dead right. The other thing they're really thinking about, maybe not on day one, but very shortly thereafter, is what's my legacy going to be? How will I be remembered for making a positive difference in the business? So again, they're looking for some quick wins. They'd like to leave a legacy. If we build a conversation around either or both of those two things, if we make sure that we speak to both head and heart, the vision that they've got for the organization, and then how all of this pays for itself and moves the the needle on metrics that can be managed in terms of dollars and percentages, really powerful. Hey, um, Dan, Dan Bogner is here with us. He's, he's the CEO of DocuSign. Dan's a great leader himself. He's got a question here for you, Bridget, about the role of a mentor or coach. Uh, how do you leverage a mentor coach and what impact has this had in your career? Well, Dan's been one of those for me. So we worked together a while back. I think mentors, I, I see the roles as very distinctly different. A coach, in my view, is invested in your performance. A mentor is invested in your development. And I absolutely see them as very different things. I've been incredibly fortunate to have 
mentors consistently in my life that have really pushed me and challenged me. And I, the way I view it, it, this actually stemmed from the time that I was on the board of the credit union. I decided at that point I needed a personal board. So I literally have an oblong table with circles around it and I have uh, people that are on my board. Some of them are perennially on my board. Others I do board yeah. renewal. So, for example, when I shifted into a regional role here at Qualtrics, I made sure I did board renewal and I have mentors on that board that have experience that I need to lean into and learn from. And it's, it's just a really simple little tactic that I use to make sure I'm, I'm purposefully doing board renewal and, and learning from my mentors. Wow. I really love that. I really love that. Hey, got another question here from Robert Shamali. I'm interested to get your point of view, Bridget, on how sellers can build trust with executives. So what's your advice about establishing trust? Well, again, it's a fundamental thing. I think people follow you as much as they trust. So the simplest thing is to deliver on any expectation that you set. If you say you're going to get back to them that day, get back to them that day. You need to look at the moments of truth where you can demonstrate that that you are doing what you say you're going to do. I mentioned before about, particularly in a B2B situation, if you can understand who is an ideal customer and why, and you can make connections to help top line revenue, regardless of what you're selling, but just connecting potential yeah. customers, and you're showing and you're proving that you're there for business benefit, you're not there for your commission check. So I think it depends on who you're, who you're selling to, but just seek out those micro moments to demonstrate that you're professionally trust, able to be trusted and also yeah. personal. Yeah, that's such great advice because we need to convey the right the right intent rather than coming, coming across like we're all about us being able to tell them about our product or solution or service and we want to make our sale. The intent we need to convey is that we're all about them improving results that we've done our research and, and you're right that we're reliable you know so after the meeting we we send an email that confirms what happened we follow up on all of those small things really agree with that 100 percent hey we're just sort of coming up on the end I'd, I'd love to ask you this question if, if you could go back in time if we could do the back to the future thing you go back in time and meet and meet the 25 year old self what what advice would you give yourself? I would love to do that. I think the the first thing I would say is don't worry about having all the answers. Mm. Just have great questions. Focus on great questions and have that curiosity. The second thing I would say is know that people want to help you and ask for help. It's amazing what can happen in your life if you ask somebody to help you. And the, probably the final thing that I would say is be true to yourself, back your values. We're only here for 100 summers. If you don't have values alignments in where you are, you know, life is short and you're pretty precious. Move on. Wow, that's, that, is, that is such great advice. I'm assuming if people do it with relevance and context and aren't a spammer, then they can connect with you on LinkedIn. Would that be a good thing to do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, thank thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with other people. And, and for everybody, make sure you go visit the Sales IQ Global website. Good selling. Just remember, make sure you keep talking the language of leaders. You've done your research. You've got the right context when you try and engage. And Bridget, th thanks again. I'm sure people got so much out of this. Mm -hmm.